We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm happy to be joined once again by the great Tom Rogan of The Washington Examiner. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. Good to be with you. Yeah, of course. So Tom is is here because I was reading the news, as one does, and realized we hadn't done an episode on the developments in uh, our sort of relationship with Russia and the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which really broke into hot debate in Congress yesterday. Tom, what was going on in Congress yesterday? What was going on with uh, the move Ted Cruz made as it related to Nord Stream 2 in Congress uh, just yesterday? So, uh, Ted Cruz and uh, James Rich uh, had a bill that would have reimposed um, immediately sanctions or within 15 days, sanctions on Russia's Nord Stream 2 energy pipeline, which is a pipeline uh, from Russia um, uh, under the uh, Baltic Sea uh, and into Germany. Uh, And the pipeline uh, concerns Republicans, quite a lot of Democrats until recently, it seems, who supported these sanctions but now don't, um, because it would allow uh, Russia to divert gas that it currently sends through Ukraine uh, and another pipeline through Poland uh, into uh, Western Europe directly. And and the risk there being that it could cut off either Ukraine, Poland, the eastern countries uh, of Europe uh, from gas supplies in cold winter um, and also would be able to cut uh, billions of dollars in annual transit fees off of uh, Ukraine. So it's part and parcel of the concerns over uh, Ukraine's ability to you know, withstand Russian pressure. Right. And what is the Biden administration's argument for how they've handled Nord Stream 2? They say that they oppose the pipeline. Uh, but they uh, waived sanctions that were imposed at the end of the Trump administration, uh, again, authorized by Congress, um, because they say that, that to impose those sanctions now would damage uh, America's relationship with Germany and weaken transatlantic unity with the European Union, uh, as uh, it appears, I think, very likely, you know, some would say likely or possible that, that Russia is about to reinvade Ukraine uh, and that you need to keep them on side. I think the contention of Senator Cruz and Republicans, certainly I would uh, join this viewpoint, is that uh, if you are, um, well, number one, I don't think Germany is a particularly good ally, even a good ally, um, frankly, even an average ally on Russia. Uh, So I don't know why we're particularly concerned with what they want their foreign minister is the only one in the government who opposes Nord Stream 2. And, and secondly, look, you know, the, once the pipeline goes online, um, you know, it's too late. It's going through a regulatory process. But if these sanctions are imposed now, uh, the costs for the German economy will effectively make it not worthwhile. And, and the Biden administration would say, well, the Germans will keep it offline if the Russians go into Ukraine. Uh, the German defense minister this week has essentially openly contradicted that point uh, by saying that, you know, it should be kept separate from issues surrounding deterrence of Russia over Ukraine. Uh, But I think it's much more likely that even if Germany did suspend the pipeline for a few months more in the event of a reinvasion, 
they would eventually uh, start operating it again because the Russians, you know, would drive up energy prices and, and essentially blackmail them into doing it. And if you look at what the Germans, German foreign policy in the last 20 years has been simply, you know, do whatever the um, Russians want them to do ultimately. Yes. Yeah, so I was going to ask um, that question next. Why is that the German sort of approach to foreign policy in this climate? Uh, because I think it's twofold. I think first they uh, they don't want to spend on defense. They, you know, again, the, the new government has just abandoned plans to move towards two percent of defense spending seven years after they. You know, Merkel said she was slowly getting there when they have the largest economy in Europe. I think President Trump was absolutely right that to pull the bases out of Germany, um, but they're not a serious ally in that regard. Um, and, um, you know, so they don't want to spend on defense, right, which is a way of showing the Russians that you're serious, the Russians respect military power. They've decided not to do that. Um, and so they've opened themselves up to kind of intimidation. And I think more callously, they just don't care. I think it's the same uh, political calculus that goes behind uh, Germany's uh, relationship with China, where mm -hmm. essentially, as long as they can export vast amounts of cars, the Uyghurs, Hong Kong, um, international order in the South China Sea can go to hell. Uh, it's just very calculating uh, and selfish, um, and obviously so. And so if they can get cheap gas through Nord Stream 2, the Polish, the Baltics, uh, Ukraine can, you know, go into expletive of choice themselves. And so uh, it, can we expect anything to change under new leadership in Germany with, with Merkel, of course, ending her long leadership at the helm of that company, uh, company, country? Yeah, well, well. so now a new coalition government has come in and Annalena Baerbock, who I, I sort of mentioned a minute ago, who's the foreign minister, leader of the Green Party, as, as funny as that sounds, is the most hawkish on Russia and China. You know, once believes that this is a, uh, Germany's policy is damaging to its alliances, to its, um, you know, to the values of democracy and individual freedom that it is supposed to, uh, hold to. Unfortunately, the Chancellor, uh, who is from the um, Social Democratic Party, Olaf Scholz, is, um, seems to be set to be even more of a kind of appeaser of Putin uh, than Merkel. Uh, and, and the SDP really has a quite strong anti-American, anti-NATO sentiment. And again, they, they're quite open that they well, I guess they care about social welfare in Germany, but but nowhere else. Um, I was going to say, is this a, a function of sort of mounting nationalism in Germany? No, I think I think there's just more of a callous, you know, um, they, they don't care really about the, the kind of values of NATO and security in a way that whatever, you know, other issues um, the U.S. has, you know, um, it's not the same as, for example, France and President Macron. You know, the, the, the French do care about these things to a degree and will stand up for them um, in China and Russia. You know, the French will practice, you know, training with the British and U.S. Air Force in Europe to, you know, in the event of a nuclear war with Russia. You know, they'll train on that. The Germans just cancelled the ability of the U.S. to have a longstanding thing going back to the Cold War and through the Cold War to be able to keep nuclear weapons in Germany. They just cancelled that under the new government. Mm. So 
this really is um, top line. Uh, and I just haven't been able to, to get an answer to it. And I asked the Democratic um, person who's on the House, um, you know, staffer on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. I, I won't say their name, but I said, can you explain <laughs> to me what Germany is, what the benefit is of Germany is uh, an ally? And, and they laughed. And so, and I think, look, I think part of this is Democrats being, I think the Biden administration is weak and is he hesitant to take on, to, to try and deter the Russians. Uh, although Jake Sullivan has sort of, you know, been a bit, I think, stronger in the last couple of days. Um, and Senate Democrats are being loyal, uh, trying to be loyal uh, to the president, which is why they voted against these sanctions, because he doesn't want them. Although five of them, five or six of them, broke ranks with the party and did vote for the sanctions. Um, you know, so I, I think there are at least that many, you know, behind the scenes who are frustrated. I do know from talking to Democratic um, staffers in the House and Senate, um, or admittedly just, just, just two, but, um, you know, that there is, there, there's disappointment with the administration strategy here and they kind of, you know, it's embarrassing because they openly supported these sanctions until now. Right. And some on the right and maybe some on the left um, are increasingly convinced that an invasion is basically imminent, that an invasion of, uh, that a Russian invasion of Ukraine is imminent. I think I saw Senator Rubio tweet something to that effect. Um, what's your evaluation of the likelihood there? I think it's very high. Uh, I think if you look at the Russian deployments, um, the kind of forces they've deployed, um, they've pulled them from all around the country. A lot of stuff that it's expensive to hold in place. Um, it's not good for morale because the Russian officers and NCOs treat their enlisted personnel with their, their juniors very poorly. It's a cultural thing of just bullying. Um, you know, and the Russians are aware that you do not want to have that many forces in freezing conditions forward. Um, spend the money and they're pulling forces you know they complain about they say nato threatens us well they're pulling a hell of a lot of forces off the estonian you know the the nato borders uh ukraine obviously not being in nato um i also think if you you consider the rhetoric that the russians have employed vladimir putin in particular in terms of ukraine not being able to exist as a, a state outside the greater russian umbrella um that it would be an existential threat it is an existential threat to Russia that, that Ukraine is closening its relations with the West. Uh, the Russian need, I think, I think Putin has domestic, you know, he wanted a war would be a way to buffer his legacy as, as a kind of, uh, you know, great, you know, the man who restored a greater Russia, um, distract away from inflation in Russia, which is, you know, about twice as bad as it is here, a little less than that, or, but, but still significant, obviously a poorer country. I, I think all the ingredients are there. And I think one of the reasons, unfortunately, that the um, the, the Russians uh, want um, feel they can do this is that is the, you know, again, the Germans, you know, they believe that ultimately as much as some countries will impose sanctions, others won't. And that, you know, six months down the road, the sanctions will be relieved. And, you know, frankly, the impact on Russia won't be that significant. And, and for all the democratic rhetoric, the, this new bill that Democrats are going to vote on that, that Schumer and Menendez have put forward next week to sanction the Russians in the event of invasion is moderately uh, significant. It's not severe. Um, and, you know, I think... Uh, 
when we talk about there's, there's going to be an opportunity here and a, a justified opportunity for Republicans to say this is the party that hit Trump and Republicans for being weak on Russia. I mean, it's 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 plainly ludicrous now uh, on the facts. Uh, they are far weaker uh, on Russia uh, than in policy terms, if not rhetoric, was President Trump and, and are the Republicans now. It's just a simple fact. I was going to ask you to address that, um, actually, because it does seem it turns the large Russian narrative on its head, right? That the Republican Party is the party in bed with Vladimir Putin that we heard, uh, and at least the Trump family and, and Donald Trump himself is in bed with Vladimir, Vladimir Putin. Um, we've heard that, we heard that repeatedly. Some people actually still defend that assertion, which has been proven false repeatedly. So in what ways does this confuse the narrative or does it show the left to, to basically be all hat and no cattle when it comes to the issue of Russia? Look, I think, you know, uh, President Trump uh, deluded himself that Putin wanted to be his equal friend and could be a partner. The, I would say the, the, the history of since, since at least 2007-8, and you could say that some of the Bush administration's actions on missile defense did inflame this, and frankly, some NATO enlargement choices, but we are where we are. Um, and the simple fact in terms of action that would impose cost upon Putin, Nord Stream 2 sanctions is the best example, but um, investment in uh, nuclear capabilities, which the Biden administration has been reticent to do, um, you know, flirting with the idea of abandoning first use reservation um, to use nuclear weapons first. You know, the, the, the facts indicate uh, that the um, that Democrats are, policy terms are, uh, you know, more appeasement friendly towards Russia than our republics. Just it's a fact. You can say maybe that's the right course of action. Right. Um, I disagree with it, but it's just a fact. And and again, as well, you know, the Trump administration um, was much more liberal in terms of what they allowed, you know, for all the stuff with RussiaGate, uh, what they allowed the CIA to do against the Russians than is the Biden administration. Can you talk more um, about that? That's probably one thing a lot of people are not at all familiar with. Um, yeah, so so it's made. it's the it's so the Russians um, when when before in the 2016, obviously the final year of the Obama administration, the Russians were going, you know, extremely aggressive with the U.S. in terms of, you know, I would say Havana syndrome starting. I know there are a lot of your listeners who would be very skeptical of that, although I'll be proved <laughs> right ultimately. <laughs> uh, we shall see. Uh, that's, that's sort of like a, a Chomsky left contention, right? That Havana syndrome is a, a fiction that intelligence agencies have invented to. Well, I uh, think Glenn Greenwald says it's a fiction, and I appreciate that. You know, he has a big following. I, I, listen, I, the I, Chomsky I left. I think that's fair. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, I but I appreciate that's something that has to be, you know, proved. And and so I think I, I get the skepticism on that. Sort of flippant remark on my part, but no, no, no. Um, it's, it's actually really interesting because it, it's again sort of gets into the realignment and the way sort of the new right and the new left are increasingly yeah, uh, yeah. aligned on on those questions. And actually, I'm I was skeptical of it, but looked into it and uh, have read a lot of your work on it, and am, am fairly convinced it's legitimate. Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, really, um, but but back to 2016. So the Russians. So there's a video actually. Your listeners can go on YouTube and type in. Uh, Moscow CIA officer attacked. 
uh, CIA officer evaded his FSB tail in Moscow to go and I would imagine meet a very sensitive source because you do not want it because the Russians will follow um, every American spy uh, 24-7 in, in Russia. Um, you do not want to go and meet a source unless you really have to in Moscow. It's called like Moscow rules from the Cold War uh, because if you know the Russians follow you, even if you don't know they're following you and they know who you're going to meet, um, that person's going to be in jail or dead and you lost your source. Um, so anyway, this CIA officer evaded his tail to go and meet someone and to punish him, uh, the a gate guard guarding the embassy um, beat him up or attacked him outside and he managed to escape and get inside the embassy. And then the Russians went and put the video of it online. Obviously, he's a accredited American diplomat, huge breach of protocol. Obama did nothing. Uh, another incident happened, which was perhaps more sensitive. I'm not going to you know, get into, but then in the third incident, uh, they went into the, they, the Russians like to go and sort of play games. And they went into the defense attache's house uh, in Moscow or his apartment and killed his dog. Mm. Um, and so, and Josh Rogan reported on that. Um, and, and so they were very aggressive. Obama was very reticent to do anything. Um, obviously Biden was part of that administration when Trump came in. Um, and I've heard this from many CIA people, including a lot of people who really don't like Trump. They will give credit and say, yeah, on, on Russia and China, when we wanted to do operations to, you know, that, that would really, you know, be more aggressive towards the Russians, whether that's disrupting something they do, uh, you know, stealing some of their technology, whatever it is, uh, where the Obama administration would take huge long periods of time or senior people the Obama administration had at the CIA would waffle and hesitate before authorizing stuff. Uh, when Pompeo went in, and obviously Trump's the president, uh, he was like, why are you coming to me on this? Just do it, you know, mm -hmm. get it done. And they loved it, of course, because they want to do stuff. And, you know, that this stuff matters. And it's gone back, by the way, uh, to, to the same under Biden on Iran, China and Russia. Uh, there is much more restrictive um, measures in terms of what CIA and operations in the people in the field can do. And, and so... Um, I, th I think the part of the, the it, it is, I think, that the the coverage um, of the Biden administration on Russia uh, is, I would say, really tier, a, a top example of media bias um, because of how uh, striking it is. If Trump was doing what Biden is doing, we would be, have calls for another impeachment. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it just, that's what would happen. Uh, but instead we get, it's presented as this is a serious administration just taking the calculated right course and the Russians are laughing. Right. You read their state media, which is obviously, yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm ranting, but. This is an ad I'm really excited to bring to you because it addresses a problem we talk about all of the time on this program. Blinkist has the perfect content to help you be a better, smarter, and more knowledgeable version of yourself in 2022. Their goal is to empower people to grow personally and professionally by discovering content that inspires, motivates, and gives you new perspective on your lives and in the world in 2022. So how do they do that? Well, with 22 Ideas for 2022, Blinkist's content can incredibly impact your lives. So there are titles of books on Blinkist, 
and they advertise themselves on their website as big ideas in small packages. So you can read major books by people like Scott Gottlieb, who has uncontrolled spread on Blinkist. Even Roger Scruton, How to Be a Conservative, that's on Blinkist. You can read books from prominent authors, books that are making a huge impact on our politics and on our culture. Ryan Holiday, who's been on this podcast, you can listen to Lives of the Stoics, you can read Lives of the Stoics, and it says right here on Blinkist's website with a subscription that book becomes a 13-minute read. Trey Gowdy, Doesn't Hurt to Ask, that book becomes a 15-minute read on Blinkist. They have such a huge library of really important and impactful titles. If you want to read Ilhan Omar's book, you can do that in a truncated time period and it becomes digestible. We are drowning in content right now in our world. And to be able to to condense important ideas from major books that are so impactful is an invaluable contribution. It's exactly the kind of innovation that we need in this high-tech world where, again, we are drowning in content. And to be able to consume it responsibly does require some work. And this condenses the important information from those books without losing anything. That is an aha moment, right? This is an innovation that is bringing us something important that works with the way we live our lives now. And too many people, because of the way we live our lives now, just don't have enough time to get to books, period. This makes books accessible. So right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Federalist to start your seven-day free trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Federalist to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Federalist. The, the Rogan rants are good. You should actually trademark, trademark Rogan rants, although you probably can't because Josh, it's Rogan. Oh, so Joe, Joe probably <laughs> Joe, has Joe, Josh, and Tom. Uh, and I'm still <laughs> waiting for an invite onto the Joe Rogan show. <laughs> um, so... And I, I, we've got the nuts and bolts out of the way first. People who have listened to Tom's interviews um, on the show before know that I like to start by asking him for uh, the basic facts because, you know, I think a lot of us know the broad contours of these issues, but they are really convoluted, especially um, in the midst of a realignment and in the, the uh, very complicated times we live in, particularly post-Russiagate. So, Tom, what would the implications be for the United States if there is a, a Russian invasion of Ukraine? I mean, what's on the line? What what are the, the hard consequences here? And, and why should Americans care? Well, um, uh, you know, I actually actually give a shout out here. One of your one of the Federalists contributors, uh, Alex um, Cletus, uh, mm-hmm. has done some very good writing for you guys on this. So that, that might be worth um, looking at. But, but, but uh, the consequences um, of Russia going into Ukraine, I think it depends what they do. I, I think it's unlikely, quite frankly, that they will try and do a mass, you know, um, mass seizure up to, um, you know, Kiev. I mean, they might, they might go to the Dnieper River that splits Ukraine. We, we just don't know. It could, it depends. Now, the question then becomes, can they sustain, they're going to take a lot of casualties the more they do. You know, Ukrainian military is not a joke. Um, it's improved a lot since 2014 when the Russians first went in. Um, Biden has been too slow. Another example to give them anti-tank weapons. Um, 
So their capability is not as good as it could be. Um, but, you know, the impact again will be Russia's uh, willingness to use force to expand its, you know, borders um, and to try and intimidate, um, you know, NATO allies. And so the tensions with NATO will really increase at a time where obviously, um, you know, the US faces a serious challenge with China. Um, I would hope one thing would be that the Europeans uh, will increase defense spending significantly and quickly. The Germans won't. The French probably will. British probably will. Polish definitely will. The Baltics. Uh, the Swedish and Finna and uh, the Finns will probably move towards joining NATO. So it would be completely counterproductive for Russia in that regard. My concern, though, is that the sanctions, primarily because of the German influence and to a degree the French, who, who really value their export market with Russia, won't support sanctions enough. The way you could impose punitive costs on Russia to make them think to make Putin make think this is a mistake is to essentially sanction their energy exports, uh, deny them not simply access to SWIFT, the international banking system, to sanction all their banks and do secondary sanctions, make m- Russian money, Russian capital around the world untouchable, uh, sanction the oligarchs in London, which would really have an impact because Putin relies on them for his patronage networks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, but will we see that? I'm doubtful. Well, yeah, I was going to ask, keep pulling at that thread. I mean, for, uh, people, especially in the, this era, um, where there is this kind of creeping trend towards, uh, isolationism, but that's, that's maybe too broad and too specific of a term, but a, a need to turn towards domestic policies, um, on really on both sides. But what would you, if you keep pulling at the thread, what it, what's the threat to Americans, um, if the, the sort of worst case scenario with NATO happens? I mean, why should, why should anyone care about that? Yeah, and, and I think it's an important point. I think, you know, that, that why should Americans care about um, NATO uh, and Ukraine, right? That, that um, you know, is it, why don't we form a detente with, you know, Russia? Um, I think the, the basic point is Russia doesn't want that detente as much as they say. Look at what they do around the world, helping the North Koreans with um, ICBM technology, helping the Russians against, you know, Japanese and South China Sea. Um, and, 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 you know, the history of the post second world war order, right. Freedom matters to Americans, you know, it should matter. I think it matters to conservatives, right. And these, the countries that are part of NATO are there because, um, and, and, and it's really important to know, I think as well, the Baltics and Poland all spend more than 2% of deep GDP on defense. You know, they take their obligations seriously. They send forces to fight with us in Afghanistan and Iraq and fight, not just sit on a base like the Germans do and drink beer um like which is what they did uh like it's it's so there they are allies that care um and then you can look at trade right it's obviously europe is there are obviously debates in conservative movement about the nature of trade and things like nafta but european economies it's, it's high value exports mainly right and and high value imports are imports you know we make a lot of planes and sell them there so trade it makes us wealthier to have those allies if Russia was just to impose not domination over them, but domination in the sense of political and economic um, fealty, you know, we would lose trade benefits. It would cost the American economy and jobs. And we'd also lose the things that would make this country the greatest country in the world, which is the ability to 
get other people to stand with us in support of the right of individuals to, you know, choose their own lives and, you know, give their children a better life instead of the Russians, you know, look at the status of living in Russia right now. Again, you know, it's declining. Putin did make improvements, um, you know, but it was off the backdrop of the Soviet Union. And, you know, now again, inflation, poverty, total corruption, um, innocent people persecuted, um, you know, killed. And, and do we want that? Is that something we're happy for? And if, if we are happy for that, why are we complaining about China? Why don't we just let the Chinese run, run the world? You know, these things matter or they don't matter. Uh, and, and, you know, again, but, it, but it, I would say as the addendum to that, there has to be part of the Trump influence, I think, enduring on the foreign policy discourse where you say, okay, but those alliances matter, but only if those people who we're dealing with care about it as well. And the Germans don't. So I don't know why they're in NATO. Get rid of them. <laughs> I'm, do- I'm done with the Germans. <laughs> um, of course, there's someone saying that with a British accent. Perhaps it has, you know, well, yeah. I shouldn't say that. Um, Tom, you can say whatever you want. Uh, so you. <laughs> now you, you just brushed the subject of China, which I think is actually intensely connect- connected to this issue of Nord Stream 2. Um, and it, can you sort of flesh out that threat and that connection with us? Yeah. Um, so, so, so what do you mean in terms of like... If the so say the pipeline goes through, what that means because of Russia's relationship with China and the uh, potential sort of overlap in what their goals are. Well, um, you know, the, the Chinese apply a same a similar strategy to Nord Stream two in a sense their relationships with Africa and the Indo Pacific nations, where they use trade dominance, or in Nord Stream 2's case, it would be the Russian energy dominance to extract political obedience. Um, and, you know, I, I think one of the fortunate things is, in much the same way as the Baltics and Poland, you see countries like Vietnam, um, you know, despise China now because of this. People are pissed off. And in Africa, it's an evolving thing. But it's a good point you make in the sense that Russia and China they're not going to become allies for, I think, historical reasons and strategic. They don't trust each other. They spy on each other a lot. Um, but they share a vision of the world in which, you know, is, you know it's, it, it's simplistic, but it is really just kind of pure bullying, right? They can throw their weight around and people do what we say or we're going to, you know, beat you up or impose costs on you. And, and, and of course, I think they a share for- a, a distaste for the United States and the United States dominance on the global. They global do. They do. But, but, but we, but, but fortunately we have enough allies again, you know, Britain, I think France, right. If the Germans, oh, sorry, if, if the, if the uh, Russians did, you know, attack a NATO country, the French would fight, you know, the, and this, this, you know, that the French is surrendering. The French military history, apart from the second world war is extremely, um, you know, the French have a fighting spirit. Um, you know, so do the British, so do the Poles, so do the, you know, Czech Republic, the Eastern countries. Um, and so was China to the Japanese and the Australians. Um, you know, and so we're not alone in this. And, and, and it's shifting quickly. Uh, those countries that are most affected uh, are willing to stand up against it. But it does require American leadership. And, you know, when you have Biden half the time appearing, he doesn't know where he is. And the other half of the time having his officials, you know, equivocating uh, and, you know, just 
total confusion in messaging. You know, the alliance, the, the idea that Biden is a reliable um, ally, you know, it did take a hit because of those people flying off wings at Kabul airport. And not simply that, with the British and French at Kabul airport saying, can we stay there? Mm. Um, you know, why are we doing what the Taliban wants? You know, uh, and, and so, so it requires leadership. I do think there's a big opportunity, though, going back to that point for conservatives and Republicans to articulate a kind of, again, a, a post-Trump, you know, learning from it's not enough just to say we support allies. You've got to explain why it matters and, and who are allies. But there is an opportunity. Yeah, it's a similar sort of uh, dilemma when it comes to Taiwan, although on a different scale um, in that if you want Republicans increasingly to uh, take these uh, more hawkish proposals or realist proposals seriously, you kind of have to show your work now. Um, there's not just this sort of instinctive, uh, maybe is, is jingoism a fair word there or a reflexive? Yeah, or just simplicity. And, and again, on Taiwan, they should be spending more on defense. At this point, I would not say the United States should send forces to fight for them. Right. You know, partly because the Navy is still obsessed with aircraft carriers, which the Chinese are going to sink, <laughs> but that's the military industrial complex. But I mean, look, you know, again, it matters. You have to, you should have a debate. Um, right. And these countries have to, you know, they, you know, countries have to be willing to fight alongside you. I do think that's the tradition, though, of like, um, you know, the, the best tradition of the United States is. It, people wanting to stand and do this thing and just wanting American leadership because the U S is the most powerful and it is the beacon of freedom. Um, and, and, and I think in a broader point, I know and this is why it's a great conversation, but we're covering a lot of angles here. That's why patriotism matters as well. Mm -hmm. You know, as an American who grew up abroad, you know, and someone who likes history, you read history. Yeah. The U S has done some terrible things and made some terrible mistakes, but compared to every other country, the good things it has done vastly outweigh those things. Uh, and that's why so many people want to come here. Um, you know, and, and why you see someone like Oku, of course, the left hate, but like Inez Cantor, you know, freedom, you know, that's, that's not, uh, people believe in that stuff because it's, they see the reality of it as juxtaposed against the reality they grew up with. Mm -hmm. what, what are and I think that's all true and, and very well said and I, I think sadly people have exploited uh, that and sort of taken for granted American patriotism and the reasons for American patriotism in the name of uh, less wise foreign policy decisions particularly wars um, Tom what were what are I think this is another important question that's just not getting a ton of coverage what were Putin's intentions in Kazakhstan um, over the last few days um Kazakhstan, I think he, well, look, he, he, he does not, Putin does not want to have a situation which the idea of uh, challenge to existing authority in the kind of, you know, post-Soviet orbit uh, is tolerated uh, or accepted. And so when they, you had an uprising there, uh, I think Putin saw that both as a prospective kind of idea. He doesn't want Russians to think that's possible. Uh, and he also did not want a situation in which, you know, a pro, more pro-Western government would take over. Um, you know, fortunately for the Russians, the uh, Kazakh security forces essentially were able to tamp down the protests. They lacked organization and, um, you know, there wasn't the kind of wellspring that you would see in other places. But, but yeah, the, you know, the Russians do not want that. And it does inform 
why the Russians see Ukraine as a kind of, um, you know, they see fifth, they're paranoid and they see fifth columns everywhere. And, mm -hmm. and you know, with a pro-Western government in Ukraine wanting better links with the West for the, many of the reasons, you know, I just mentioned, um, you know, the Russians don't want to do that. They tamp it down. And ultimately, I think that's why they're going to evade is that they, it's, you know, it, it, it's something they don't feel, Putin doesn't feel he can live with. And he has a big opportunity in the sense of restoring Russia, the greater Russia to make them, you know, uh, under his thumb again. Um, and, you know, we're not talking about, I'm not talking about sending forces to Ukraine or even in the near future, having them in NATO, but it, it's nonsensical that Biden is hesitant to throw anti-tank weapons at them. Um, you know, that, the, the, again, what the Russians are doing is simply trying to bully them. Um, so. Right. No, no, no. I think that's uh, an important point and, and I think insight into the broader Putin strategy um, and, and pivoting before we wrap up just to one more part of the world that would be Haiti. Um, <laughs> there was an update this week on that and it was, as uh, Ryan Grimm of the Hill pointed out, buried on uh, in paragraph 30 of a New York Times report. Um, people probably remember the president of Haiti was assassinated over the summer and um, essentially a man who admitted to financing the operation said he was told that uh, they had the backing of the United States. And he was a DEA informant. The New York Times uh, at least reported that this week. Tom, how seriously or how much credibility does a former DEA informant who did, um, who admitted at least to financing this assassination operation, um, is, is there credibility there? Uh, and, and if so, what do Americans make of it? Well, you know, I, I think the basic point, you know, informants, it's, most informants are not nice people. Um, you know that, that, that they are. I mean, who, 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 who? You know, if you're in a drug cartel, right, and you have valuable information, you're not just some probably some fourteen. You may be sometimes you are, but you're not. You're not probably a fourteen year old just you know courier. Uh, you're, you're someone making decisions to make. You know, you've killed people. You've done whatever, and so I think that's part of the risk of the game. Frankly, I would say it's. Um, I'd probably have a more nihilistic view. I'd say it's, it's good that we have informants like that uh, because it shows that we're not just, you know, being doing what we did in the 1990s with the CIA, which is to say we can't recruit people unless they're not criminals or whatever. You know, you're trying to, the world is, uh, you know, nasty in places. You've got to deal with that. Clearly, when someone, you know, goes and does something like this, um, you, you know, there's a level where you'd have to balance against your own interests, right? You can't be complicit in that. Um, but, you know, again, like with terrorist groups, you know, a lot of people that were uh, informants inside terrorist groups for the U.S. and other, they're not doing it because they love the U.S. They're doing it because they've agreed not to be a participant in actual attacks um, mm. as a condition, for example, right? We would not allow someone to be informed if they're plotting attacks. Although um, we do know that the New York Times was uh, in touch with somebody as the, uh, in touch with an informant as the, not the New York Times, that the FBI was in touch with an informant as they were, uh, as the Capitol riot was ongoing. Well, yeah, I mean, I, but I mean, what? Whether or not that's common. What, I, you're what, saying what that they should, should they shouldn't have done that? Do you mean? 
just that if if they ha- were in touch with somebody who was actually involved in rioting, um, that sort of cuts right. against the idea that they're not oh, why didn't they know about fomenting uh, attacks or anything like that. And in the Gretchen Whitmer case as well, although that wasn't that plot didn't play out. Yeah, I mean, uh, part of the issue, right, is that informants are going to tell you some stuff sometimes and then not tell you. But clearly, if there's you know um, fermenting stuff, is a no no. It shouldn't happen. Um, but but yeah, <laughs> to be put that on like a, a pin. <laughs> yeah, fermenting yeah, stuff right. is a no no. Yeah, but um, but but the you know, the basic point here is if you want information, right, if you want to prevent an attack and it's someone who's a, you know, child molesting terrorist, but he isn't involved in making the bombs and we're giving him money, clearly that's a moral quandary. But but if he's the person who's going to give you the information to save 100 American lives, perhaps in that moment, you should do that, right? I mean, yeah, that's no. as dark as it gets, though. And right. I'm not, and so I'm just, I... You know, I, I, but again, I, I guess as, as an example, right, I, it's like waterboarding and stuff. You, should you do that? Um, and I don't know, I, I guess I'm more, uh, you know, more kind of tolerant of doing that stuff to, to protect um, Americans. And yeah, this is the New York the New York Times headline um, that it, an FBI informant marched into the Capitol on January sixth. So in that case, it's an FBI informant actively involved in uh, right. But I mean, I, and again, I, I guess the condition there would be: what? How much did that person know about the plan? What mm-hmm. did he text his handlers um, and say? You know, this is happening right now. You better. And and so, and again, sometimes informants are just doing it because they want a quick buck, but they don't really want to betray their organization. Right. Um, sure. And and so you know, um, we need an investigation. I would say a bigger issue that the FBI has failed to address is um, double standards in terms of you know um, FBI agents lying to you know other FBI agents in internal investigations and not being prosecuted for that, and then members of the public being prosecuted. That is clearly not. Um, is not, you know, lend public confidence to an institution like that. Yeah. Tom, I think we should pick up this conversation because it's uh, fascinating and have another episode solely on it. You have this this level of insight into the intelligence community that I find just like endlessly fascinating. And, and Tom knows this. I just sit and pick his brain sometimes when we're just like socially having. And you fear. call me out, though, you know, which is good. And I enjoy, you know, uh, no, we have a good. No, always a good debate, and vice versa. I don't. You know, it's not one sided. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, as as regular listeners know, an, an expert in foreign policy. Uh, you know, I've never really been particularly interested in foreign po- policy, but the uh, China issue in particular has piqued my interest, and uh, and I think probably you've done great work on the on on Hollywood and the just the, the just the total fealty. Moral, moral, oh, it's just sickening. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, Tom, let's let's pick this up um, on a future episode. But in, in this case, your insights, invaluable, as always, especially this time into the, the Nord Stream 2 negotiations and recent developments in, in our relationship with Russia and with Ukraine. We always appreciate it. Tom Rogan of The Washington Examiner. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thanks, Emily. You can follow Tom on Twitter at TomRTweets. You can uh, go to his website. What is that, Tom? Tom R. Thinks. 
uh, TomRoganThanks.com. I just post all my articles there. So. Yeah, it's a great way yeah. to keep uh, in, in updated on Tom's work. TomRoganThanks.com. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.